Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined from Portland, Oregon by Antifa-affiliated journalist Jason Wilson. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Jason. You're going to make my problems worse, aren't you? Yeah, um, no problems. Thanks for having me on, as always. Jason, you have been exploring the Claremont Extended Universe. Could you tell us what is that and why have you, with the skull of a rapscallion, been causing so much trouble for it? Well, so I guess the Claremont Institute, for for those of you listeners who don't know, is a... um, uh, a, a think tank, a quasi-academic institution. It's It's been somewhat attached to Claremont College, which is a private university in... Or there's overlap anyway. I, I'm not suggesting that they're, they're organizationally linked, but there's, there's overlap in personnel. So academics from Claremont College have been involved in, in the Claremont Institute. Until the Trump years, it was fairly confined to... Uh, the pursuit of a particular intellectual project in conservatism, I guess, is the best way to put it, which which proceeded from the work of a, a guy called Harry Jaffa, who was a Claremont College academic, and he was a, a scholar of Abraham Lincoln. He wrote books about Lincoln and had this somewhat idiosyncratic conservative reading of, of Lincoln, and he was an admirer of Lincoln. Not all conservatives are. But anyhow, during the Trump years, he's he's no longer with us. During the Trump years, Claremont became a much harder-edged, more politically involved, and more enthusiastic about providing what you might call intellectual firepower or an intellectual basis for right-wing populism, Trumpism. So, I mean, the, 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 the starter's gun there at least as far as the public was concerned, is there's a guy there called Michael Anton who wrote uh, an essay called uh, The Flight 93 Election where the an- analogy he was drawing was that the, uh, Trump may not be that good, but we need to take drastic action because... And the analogy is with the TWA flight that passengers took over and crashed because it was heading for... Where was it heading for? The White House, I guess. So, And from there, they've become more and more at the centre, really, of right-wing populism and really important in legitimizing certain kinds of ideas, narratives, individuals that go along with that. And so during the Trump years, that arguably culminated in a, a, a person who was a Trump lawyer 
a person who was providing legal arguments, in fact, for the purposes of contesting the election result was John Eastman, who is a, a senior fellow at Claremont, is involved in putting out their uh, magazine, the Claremont Review of Books, and, and is himself a lawyer and was a law, law academic. He actually spoke to the January 6th rally while it was still outside Congress before it proceeded inside, but he was very much a, a firebrand and, and making these specious legal arguments that, that maybe could keep Trump in office. And he's now been indicted along with Trump in Georgia. And I think he's named in other prosecutions related to January 6th as well. And and since Trump has fallen, the, the biggest donor and the board chairman at the Claremont Institute is a guy called Thomas Klingenstein, who I've written about in the past. And he's appears to be in some way sailing the ship now. And he's he made a series of videos in 2021 about how America was at war and we need to fight the white communists and take the country back from them. And he also started donating lots of money to Republican political candidates, whereas he hadn't much before. And and what they do is they run a series of fellowships, which effectively are a, a forum for, they're not residential fellowships. The fellows will turn up for a weekend or a week or whatever. So they issue Lincoln fellowships, Publius fellowships to, to conservative activists, I guess, in various phases of their career. They do one for sheriffs as well. And they'll get all those folks together and it's an opportunity for them to, to network. And, and a lot of those folks go on to pursue projects either in, in coalition with the Claremont Institute or with other people who've had fellowships or their endeavours will perhaps become more marked with the ideas that Claremont likes to push. Now, some of those fellows have included people like Blake Masters, who your listeners might have heard of. Jack Posobiec has had a fellowship there. And one fellow who I've written a lot about recently is Christopher Rufo, who is someone who has campaigned against, successively against what, what he calls and understands as critical race theory. He's campaigned against sort of various measures that various states have taken to support or include transgender people. He has, and and he was loomed large in the pursuit of Harvard President Claudine Gay over her alleged softness before a a congressional hearing about anti-Semitism on on Harvard's campus. And, And then he pursued these plagiarism allegations against her. So a lot of the work I've done this year has really been, I guess, in this extended network of Claremont activists, people who've been fellows there, people who've built relationships there and who are pursuing, I guess what you would call, if you wanted, wanted to, me to give the themes of this, these lines of thought that I've been talking that Claremont have been spreading, I guess it would be they're advocates of right-wing populism, they're, they're supporters, they're, they're, I think, opposed to what they would see as a conservative establishment as much as they are to, to, to liberals and leftists. And they're very open to kind of authoritarian resolutions of what they see as the emergency in America. America's descent, in their minds, into a social justice tyranny or woke communism, as, as Klingenstein puts it. So they see all of, all of this in very dark terms. They see America as it is in very, very dark terms. And they see it as an emergency or whatever, a state of exception where uh, we might have to just have an authoritarian leader in place for however long for, it takes. Just for a minute. 
Yeah. Well, I don't know if they even put an endpoint on it, but like the whole idea of, I wrote a piece a few months back there, which was a news feature, I guess, about about how a lot of folks in that, actually I wrote too, a lot of folks in that network have been talking about how they need a red Caesar. And red in this case is not communist. It means the, the Republican Party is, is, is red in the US context. And, and they've also, I wrote something about how a lot of them have expressed admiration for Franco, Spanish dictator Franco. So there, there's a real openness to authoritarianism. And I think there's a lot of good evidence that while their direct influence is, is hard to calculate precisely or quantify, there's a lot of evidence that they are, there's a lot of evidence that those kinds of ideas are, are percolating more widely in, in, in conservative politics and in the Republican Party. And there's a concern, I guess, that if, if say, Trump is elected in November and some emergency public order, that folks like that will have the arguments ready for him to make in order to whatever suspend parts of the constitution that's that's what sources i that's a worry that sources i've talked to have expressed it anyway in in regard to this talk about caesarism and stuff so so yeah i mean i i'd say that for most of this year really oh well this year's just started for most of the last six or seven months i've just really been looking at this broad Claremont connected network and, and what people are up to. And the interesting thing from my perspective is uh, that you don't have to dig too far. They, they tend to say things out loud and, and things tend to be quite on the surface. So, yeah. Jason, you've made reference to critical race theory mm-hmm. as uh, being one target of this or yep. satellite in this <clears throat> extended universe. What's the understanding of critical race theory and race in this universe? And how does it relate to science? So <laughs> I, I would say that critical race theory, these folks use critical race theory. I mean, critical race theory is a scholarly tradition or a, a school of, of, of research, specifically in legal studies, where I, I guess it embodies a criticism by black scholars and others who have been persuaded by their arguments of the embedded assumptions in American law and the judiciary and the way, way in which law runs that are, I guess, white supremacist. That's the argument. I mean, Chris Rufo and, and others who, who use that term in the last couple of years were really not taking issue with that specific school of thought or, or that specific tradition of scholarship. They were more using it as an umbrella term for anything, especially in school curriculums, but also in colleges that either at the level of curriculum acknowledged the, the history of, of, of slavery and, and, and white supremacy that, that really has been one of the, the, the major themes of American history. They either acknowledge that, but it could also encompass, I guess, discussions of contemporary American racism in, in classrooms, measures of inclusiveness on the basis of race in in schools or other educational institutions. So, so they blew up this term to, to make it encompass anything that acknowledged or in some small way tried to remedy the history of white supremacy in the United States. So that's, that's how it was wielded as a, a, a political weapon, I guess. And like Rufo has had a pretty charmed run in a lot of national media, including outlets that you might ordinarily think of as liberal 
I mean, his first big media splash was a profile in the New York Times, which credited him with mounting this critical race theory campaign. And and he's been given a lot of credit for events that he's taken an interest in. And and again, I think it was Politico after Claudine Gay was fired that sort of credited Rufo with having orchestrated that. So he's been credited or depicted as someone who has a fair amount of political acumen and who was able to conduct these culture war campaigns in a, in a skillful way that, that advantages Republicans. So that was critical race theory. And then he, he also got involved in the transgender stuff. He, he became an advisor and a close ally of Ron DeSantis, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who recently dropped out of the presidential race. He's, he ended his presidential campaign. And DeSantis had this thing called the like Stop Woke Act, which stands for they like to they like to give laws acronym, snappy acronym, acronymic titles here. So that actually stands for Stop Wrongs to Our Kids and Employees Act. <laughs> uh, and so that that it regulates the content of curriculum content as well as training in workplaces, and it it, it prevents. In either in training or in curriculums, saying that, for example, any white person now shares responsibility for for the history of slavery, for example. Now, that's a tendentious reading, possibly, of what was actually going on in those trainings or, or, or in those classrooms, that, that like individual white kids or white employees were being singled out by trainers or by, by teachers as responsible for slavery. What might have happened is that in the case of classrooms, I imagine that discussion might go to the idea that that contemporary white Americans continue to benefit from the wealth that was extracted during the period of slavery or from there, there's still white privilege. That kind of thing might have come up. Is that is that slating individuals with, with the responsibility for that history? I'm not exactly sure. But the the practical effect was to tear the heart out of a lot of a lot of training which is really aimed at supporting diversity in workplaces and making them more inclusive and curricula like like lessons teaching pedagogy that that yeah just acknowledged that history and 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 talked about how that history might have have continuing effects in the present so like DeSantis actually invited Rufo down to Florida for the the signing of that act in in 2022 and DeSantis won handily. I mean, he he ran he had he, he ran for re-election as governor in 2022 at the sun. That election was concurrent with the midterm elections, and on a pretty um, bad night for Republicans, he did pretty well. Uh, now, the odd thing is <laughs> that that was used to burnish Rufo's this idea of Rufo as a, a canny political operator. DeSantis's victory was, even though the it seems like a lot of the underperformance of Republicans nationally in the midterms may or may not be due to the fact that, like, that the party ran on anti-transgender politics to, to a, a, a large extent. But certainly, if it didn't cause it, it, it clearly it didn't help them to have a big midterm victory. 
And now he and others are now focused on this idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI, as a, a grave injustice that, that is institutionalized in, in universities and, and, and corporations. Wherever there's a DEI office, that's a, it's, they, he and others campaigning against this portray it as a sort of effectively a discrimi- an institutionalized discrimination, right? A, a racial preferment. So it's that idea, I guess, like the same charges were often made of uh, affirmative action programs, right? That, that like, there's this form of colorblind racism, colorblind anti, anti-racism that actually winds up saying, well, programs to help black people, universities who have historically not enrolled that many black people, if they have any program or any preferment that, that means more black people get to go there, like, like that's that's judging someone by the, the color of their skin, not the content of their character. It's that rhetorical approach that has, has sort of been re, retreaded and rebranded in these efforts. And presumably is presented as coming at the cost of whites. Is that correct? Yeah, but I, I think that's, well... Yeah, I I think that's right, Andy. It, but it's it's somewhat implicit in a lot mm. of the presentations of it. It's somewhat implicit. It's 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 more like that initiatives like that are just racist on their face because they're they're giving preferment yeah. to a particular racial group. That said, like I I think that the whole Claremont network and and in my most recent reporting, Rufo in particular, are trying to thread this needle where. I think it's fair to say that there's a lot of energy on the far right now and that that energy maybe looks useful to someone who is trying to enact a political project. There's a lot of intellectual ferment, I guess, on the far right, but a lot of it is still, even in 2024 beyond the pale, a little too dank for the tastes of the general public, you know, what I'm saying. Like, it's, it's, and particularly when it comes to treatments of race. And so, in, in my most recent reporting, I've, I've looked at Rufo in particular and, and, and showed how he has pretty direct connections to, so the last story I did was about how he recommended to his Substack readers and has praised on his newsletter and elsewhere uh, a magazine called Aporia Magazine, which my sources characterize, including scientists, geneticists, just characterize that that publication as a forum for scientific racism. So the idea that innately black people are, on average, 15 IQ points adrift of white people and that that is caused by genetics and biology, which is... I think it's fair to say if you talk to a geneticist, that's a pretty discredited idea at this point. And it's a, it's an idea that has has been discredited for some time, but is revived uh, by small networks of scientists who attempt to make it respectable. But ultimately, I mean, in the last story, I pointed out that they this Aporia magazine, whose editors have been embroiled in public controversy over there, support for these ideas and their articulation of these ideas. They published a guy who was one of the, one of the articles I highlighted that they had published was, was a guy who had Peter Frost, uh, who had previously published stuff um, 
uh, co-authored uh, a paper saying that 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 capital punishment in Europe in the late Middle Ages uh, was eugenic in the sense that it 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 killed all of the people who were predisposed to interpersonal violence and it, 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 they call, they called it the genetic pacification of Europe, right? So like they just executed so many bad people that like everyone who was left was pretty docile. And that's why European societies are have lower crime rates than other countries. But it, for Aporia, he wrote about how there's this Goldilocks zone, right? Where, yes, look, inbreeding's bad, but like here's all this evidence that if you outbreed too far, like if you if you breed with if you mate, <laughs> have children, offspring with someone who's too genetically distant to, from you, that could cause problems too. And one of my sources, Kevin Bird, who's a, a postdoc in um, genetics at UC Davis, he said that effectively this was an argument against miscegenation, a dressed up argument against miscegenation. And in fact, the guy had presented a neutral, as neutral, credible evidence uh, a study from the 1920s who was done by this guy, Davenport, Charles Davenport, I think, uh, from memory, who who was studying mixed-race people in Jamaica. He went to Jamaica because he thought there would be... A, he wanted to understand the problems caused by racial mixing. So he went to Jamaica in the 20s and, like, literally had his calipers out measuring people's skulls and various body parts. And, and so he was a scientist. <laughs> well, he was a, he was a eugenicist. He was a prominent eugenicist. And, and that's, like, the trouble with this stuff, that it's embodying this history of, of, of eugenics and, and ultimately it's a history of, of white supremacy as well, aggressive reinforcement of, of, of white supremacy. And like the eugenics movement in the United States, that it bolstered Jim Crow and segregation. It, it pretty directly led to the 1924 Immigration Act, which more or less banned non-white immigrants from coming to the United States and, and, and was aimed at Asian, East Asian immigrant, Chinese and Japanese immigrants in particular. All of that was justified exactly in terms of the idea that miscegenation is a, is a grave social ill. So whether Chris Rufo just doesn't really vet who he's promoting or whether, because, because to be very, very clear, in public, in terms of his stated principles, he claims to be a colorblind. He uses that that term. He's he's a colorblind advocate of of equality between between people, and so very much not a brain pan guy in his public <laughs> rhetoric. But so that's that's the mystery, right? So what? Like, if that's your project, why are you apparently adjacent to to these guys? A, a previous story. I wrote, I mean, someone he cited, in his pursuit of Claudine Gay, he, he highlighted, promoted the work of this, this data scientist, a Danish data scientist called Jonathan Pallison. And I wrote a story saying, like, this guy's written papers with all of these scientific racists, right? Including one that, well, he, 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 he told me, Pallison told me in emails that he, he just did the data. Like he wasn't, he wasn't involved and he was trying to back away from this stuff slightly, but he, he had been very hot on the idea that, that Gay had committed plagiarism. And, and then he claimed to have discovered problems with her data as well in her PhD thesis and a paper associated with it. And that's why 
Rufo deployed him as this expert critic. But those, he and co-authors who are widely viewed as race scientists, they used this longitudinal twin study from Wisconsin to make this argument that that Jewish, the higher intelligence, the higher IQ of Ashkenazi Jews is is genetically is 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 a product, at least in part, of genetic causes, right? Uh, and that paper was demolished, really, by a, a bunch of people who co-authored a paper. One of whom I talked to for my story, and they were the people who had actually included the genetic data, like like integrated genetic data, into these longitudinal studies, so to to, to facilitate genetic study and, and, and analysis of, of the people who are in these longitudinal studies. And they, 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 would, they basically said, this, this, this is really bad statistics. Like, like, and actually, you're, if, if you were right in the, in the way that you've interpreted this data and analyzed it and applied it, you've actually understated the case. Like, if, if you're right, every Jewish person should have, uh, in the study, in your, in your, population that you're looking at should have genius level intelligence to 200 IQ. And it's it's actually like on average at that time in Wisconsin, where a lot of other people in the study are farmers or who don't complete their formal education, even with all of that, the, the, the difference is more like five to 10 IQ points, stuff like that. So he was being mobilized as a statistic, as an, a, an authority with, with expert criticisms to make of Gay's work when he had been fairly roundly criticized and demolished, I would say, by by these other experts. So it's like, yeah, the quest and I've got watch the skies for some further reporting along these lines, but the, the, the question that's been animating those stories is well Oh, I did a previous one as well about him. He hosted this Twitter space and this guy called Charles Haywood, who's also in that Claremont extended universe. I wrote about him. He started this fraternal lodge thing called the Society for American Civic Renewal, which is men only and has has speculated about his own future as a warlord and talked about his compound and stuff. And he's he made a bunch of money making shampoo in in Indianapolis, Indiana. It's a white label soap that would go out to hotels and stuff like that. And he sold that business and now he's on 30 acres in the, in the Indiana suburbs that he describes as a compound. And an earlier story I did had Rufo and him in a Twitter space and this Haywood guy saying that, like, if there's ever a white nationalist leader in the United States, the right should cooperate with, with that person hypothetically to, to, to destroy the left because that's that's the main goal. And so it's like, yeah, the question keeps arising. And, and Mr. Rufo does not appreciate these stories. In fact, he's he got my he got my mentions the other day. <laughs> he was so annoyed with me. But I think it's a fair question to ask. Like you say that you're doing one thing, and like, what are you getting out of being proximate to these people? What are you getting out of this association? Like, what? Mm. <laughs> anyway, so within the woke left, it is now a crime to have friends. That's it. Yeah. And, and it's like the, the, their favorite trump card is like this is guilt by association, and it's like, well, this is an association you chose. You're actually promoting these people to your readers. I mean, it's not like you were standing at a bus station with them, right? It's like this seems to be a working relationship. And like I have reached out to him in all of these stories, 
someone I think in pretty good faith said, like, what's going on here? Did you not vet these people? Do you, do you, is, what's, what's happening here? Like, help me understand. And he doesn't want to have that conversation, I guess. So that, that's what's going on. I mean, I, I just think it though, more broadly, it's an example of an increasing, the, the disappearance of certain stigmas, right? Or, or, or the weakening of certain stigmas about people with, views on race that a lot of people would have said 20 years ago had sort of effectively died at the end of World War II, right? Those ideas had died as as things that might inform policy, right? Or that things that were even a legitimate part of the political discussion. And, and that stigma seems to have weakened, as it has around things like anti-Semitism and, and stuff that was career-ending as as recently as a decade ago is is just it's just not anymore i guess well you were saying before about how they're all sort of out in the open it seems like some of these eugenics people you know take great exception to being referred to as eugenicists or race scientists and yet you you, you look on their website and they're like oh obviously i've just done the centerfold and calipers quarterly like they they're very much public with what they're doing <laughs> it's just that they don't like being called eugenicists yeah, they don't like the way in which their work is characterised. I mean, and, and looking at this world, by the way, the lead, certainly the leading lights in this movement are not, in general, biologists, right? They're not geneticists or they're just not biologists. Mostly they're psychologists and or other kinds of social scientists. And I do detect a certain level of frustration on the part of people who are trained in genetics, who are doing genetic research at, at the way in which these people are marshalling this material to make arguments about about the, the superior, the innate, the innate superiority in, in in particular traits of white people over black people. And with the with the stuff about IQ comes claims about criminality, innate criminality. Yeah, and and they're absolutely not shy about it. I mean, some of them have had professional consequences as a result of holding this these positions. So by Weingard, who's the executive editor of Aporia, he was, he by his own account, he was fired. He wrote an article in Quillette about saying that he was fired. At the very least, his contract was not renewed at a, a college, in, a small liberal arts college in Georgia after he gave a presentation in, I think, 2019 at the University of Alabama, where he did have <laughs> reportedly, according to their reports, and I asked him whether the reports were accurate, and he didn't respond directly. But according to reports of that event, he ran a version of an argument that I also saw Helmuth Nyborg make, make when I went to American Renaissance in 2017. As a reporter, I went as a reporter to American Renaissance <laughs> And it's this idea that basically the intelligence of populations increases in direct proportion to their the, 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 the distance of their historical homeland or whatever from the equator. So white mm. people in East Asians are smarter because they're further from the equator because colder conditions select for intelligence, right? And and that's it sounds ridiculous, right? Like it's like to me it sounds a little like I don't know, Tula Society stuff, what I mean, like Hyperborea or whatever. It seems to have echoes of that anyway, right? Sounds very old. Or, or yeah. very futuristic, like robots whose processes can operate better in the cold. But- right. And, and so, but that, it seems like a ridiculous argument, but it's one that this movement seems like wedded to, just as they're wedded to 
data sets that have been floating around since the Mankind Quarterly days about national IQ that says that the the data was the data set that I'm talking about here was generated by Richard Lynn, who used to be the editor of Mankind Quarterly, which was an infamous venue for this stuff that was backed by the Pioneer Fund. And I mean, it's startling. I mean, he says Bushmen, I think, have a 55 IQ or something, which would be by by most measures, clinical measures, it, it would it would make that would make them the entire population of Bushmen intellectually disabled, like pretty seriously so. And so, like Weingart and some co-authors had to retract a paper in 2020, I believe, from a a, a, a fairly reputable journal because. When their work was published, there was a hue and cry, and they had to. I don't know what happened behind the scenes, but like the 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 public resolution of this was that the authors retracted their own paper, and and in their retraction said admitted that there were problems with this data, but like Weingart's using the data again in Aporia, so it's it's a very it's a very peculiar formation, and it seems like an older generation of guys like Nyborg, like. Like like Richard Lynn, like Charles Murray, to an extent, have passed the torch onto these younger people who really are still trying to do the thing that these guys have been trying to do all along, which is to get this stuff into mainstream journals, if possible, and to build up this corpus of their work that they can all cross-site and, and make all of this seem like legitimate yeah. knowledge. And unfortunately, one of my sources was a guy called a retired professor of psychology called Andrew Winston. He's, he's up in, uh, he was at the University of Guelph in Canada. And he's a psychologist who's been trying to push back on this stuff for years. And it, it, it just wouldn't pass muster in specialist journals about genetics. But it just seems like, well, what Winston said to me was that it's had a foothold in psychology because psychology of all the social sciences is the one that's most anxious about its claims to being scientific. And and perhaps whether or not that's true, there there may not be among peer reviewers always the expertise to spot this stuff for what it is and to to push back on it. And they they may be just the relationship between the data and their statistic and and their analysis looked over, but not maybe enough questions are asked about the data or what's going on here. In terms of criminology, Jason, have figures like Lombroso been? Resurrected. I can't say that I've seen that specific. Oh, it's, it, actually, it is ringing a little bell there, Andy. I'm going to say maybe. I, I I can't give you an ex- a specific example, but I think that I think that in general, just what I did see was a, a lot of blandly passing off as reliable data stuff that was co- collected by eugenicists in the early 20th century. I mean, I think that's pretty pretty common. Like, there's a backfilling going on where not only are they trying to get the arguments out there, but they're trying to rehabilitate the reputations of the people who have historically made those arguments. And to try and sort of rehabilitate whatever this thing is, this field, right, or this this paradigm. So, yeah, but I mean, t- honestly, I, I relied heavily on my sources here because part of the problem is that I don't have the training to directly engage with that, mm. that stuff. I, I don't really understand genetics i gotta tell you i i, I do enough i do yeah. enough well, Jason, um, when a mummy and a daddy love each other yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but, but the, the, the analysis that's going on now it's I, I do understand it well enough and and people were generous enough to explain specific issues to me and i, I got a handle on it but it's it's like 
if you put me in front of a, a, a recent paper on, on genetics, it's, it's going to be a slog. And like rhetorically, these guys are not printing slurs. They're not, I would say their tone is very, the, the, the tone is not, there's no ranting. The tone, there's this posture of sort of open-mindedness and exploring and, and not wanting to hide the truth and all that stuff. And so like the difficulty is that some of this stuff is going to land in front of people. Very few people have expert training in genetics and and population biology, and it's just going to land in front of people and 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 sound plausible. I mean, I think there's some evidence that someone like Elon Musk has had something like land in front of him, and through some combination of motivated reasoning and wanting to sort of be seen to engage with science himself, he he winds up repeating this stuff, and it's just that's the difficulty with this material that it's just it has been very thoroughly criticized over and over again but it just keeps coming back uh, that's certainly what this the sentiment that scientists express to me um, and it seems like now there are fewer barriers in the culture to this thing receiving an, a wider audience so yeah i i think at one time say in the news business i don't know I, this may be rose colored glasses I think, I think at one time there was probably a default position where claims about racial superiority and inferiority would would have to be default. We're not we're not gonna we're not gonna run with that. Like we need to we need to check that. We need to figure out if this is if this is true. But I do see the news business has collapsed. So and now there's all yeah. kinds of apparently there's a, a niche in the market. Yeah. So that's that's that anyway. I mean, it's very it's very yeah, it's it's pretty confounding and disappointing to, to to know that those ideas are being advanced by people who want them to be taken seriously in in whatever eighty years after the end of World War Two. A crime just to think ideas. They have <laughs> from, straight from the horse's mouth. So much for the tolerant left. Jason, you wrote another article for The Guardian recently, a little bit closer to home for us. I did see one commenter say, How does this guy in Portland know what's going on here? Yeah, well, that's a that's a good question. It's no accident the neo Nazis tried to rally on Australia Day. Denialism of our dark history aids their cause. What did you make of the events of this? Will be two weeks ago now. I mean, in and of itself, like it was all fairly comical on, on one level, right? I mean, they just they they could not organise a, a a booze up in a brewery, right? Like, is that the radio version? Like, mm. it just seems like they they failed and 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 in a way that was fairly keystone cops i think i think you've fallen for uh some propaganda there in fact it was all a great success and it went exactly as planned i see i've I been see. told well yeah i mean allowing for the possibility that i've been i've been misinformed but i i think that i, I mean the, the broader picture is well the question i was trying to ask is like why do these guys even see an opportunity here right and it's, I think it's because Australia Day has, people have asked very reasonable questions about Australia Day. Like, why is this our national holiday? I mean, is this the thing that we want to, to commemorate on our national holiday? It, like the beginning, effectively, of the, the, the dispossession of Indigenous people in Australia, the legal side of that. I mean, it seems reasonable, like, to think about moving that, right? But But that has... That those questions and that that position is not 
sort of debated in good faith. It hasn't been, I don't think, ever by by people who are opposed to it. It just becomes this reflex culture war thing where people on the other side of it create this hysteria, right, that encompasses stuff like Kmart deciding – what it wasn't Kmart, was it? It was Woolies, sorry. Kmart. What, Kmart probably still exists, but it was Woolies who – it seems like just made a retail decision that, that like this stuff isn't selling and it's it's not selling enough to justify the shelf space it takes up right that's what retailers think about so we're not going to sell it anymore they weren't they weren't being woke right but that's how it was depicted it's taking a pot cross bun space and like i i think also like if you're going to buy that thing like a plastic Aussie flag or a hat, like you probably don't need to buy it every year, right? Like maybe they made a little bit of money for a while, but like <laughs> you just don't need to replace that sort of thing every year. Like you probably, if you've got if you've got your your bucket hat with the Aussie flag on it, you've got your bucket hat, right? You don't need another one. Depends how much you love your country, Jason. That's true. <laughs> That's true. And how many heads you have, I suppose, as well. But it's and so it seems to me that that creates a, a conflict. Where there's no on one side of that, on the other side of that, there's there's a and, and we saw this back in the nineties, right, with the history wars on up. I think that like during the Keating government, there were some sort of moves to acknowledge Aboriginal dispossession and and the the Mabo decision happened and all that stuff, and it seemed like there might be some movement on all of that. But then the panic started with the Howard years, the idea that Mabo meant that people's suburban backyards would would be be reclaimed when that was explicitly never going to happen. But, but, I mean, the reason for me, sorry, invoking the history wars and and Mabo and all that stuff is that that it just seems like the one side of this is committed to never acknowledging any of this, to to never acknowledging that that, that the white uh, colonisation of Australia was... uh, involved stealing stuff and killing people that people don't even want to acknowledge that and i think that if that's the terms of the the conversation then guys like this see an opportunity to 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 reassert what what their version of white australian identity is and and without maybe not getting much pushback at least from one side of the argument right i don't know that's what do you think i think in fairness to the nsn they not only acknowledge that history, but uh, celebrate it. Right. Well. <laughs> Quite unashamedly. Right. Fair point. Fair play to them. <laughs> but, like, and I think, I mean, I, I sort of brought up the fact that I, I still don't think there's been any full appraisal and reckoning of the, the stuff that happened in Christchurch, courtesy of an Australian, who, I don't know if you guys read the New Zealand parliamentary report that came out about that, but they yes. they did they did get a lot of biographical information about him, and, yes. and he kind of told them that his formative years were precisely at the time that the Cronulla riots happened, like at the the height of that war on terror. Like he was, that was crucial to his political formation. The, the Islamophobia that was really really powerful at that time in 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 the public conversation and that's just never been acknowledged either like i don't think i mean the the level of reflection and analysis and thinking about all of that that happened in new zealand i mean compare that to what happened in australia like nothing happened really alongside that right i mean there was no reckoning with that am i wrong about that i 
No, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. And so I, I don't even know, I don't even know how many people in Australia, like t- the, the, the government in Christchurch was, was an associate of Thomas Sewell's, right? Like, like, like had been in communication and, and, and even though that's true, no one seems to, well, few, too few people seem to want to be out, draw the line between what happened in Christchurch and, and these guys trying to stage events on Australia Day and, and get their politics into the conversation about Australia Day. I don't know. I mean, it just, it, it's wild to me. I don't know what you guys think. I think you're likely correct, but I suppose the other thing that occurs to me in this context is the NSN employing Give, Send, Go to raise funds for their activities, the same grouping that sponsored the Conservative Political Action Conference last year. Yeah, and and I wrote a couple of stories when their entire website <laughs> leaked, was hacked. Yeah. And one thing that Blake Masters got upset with me about was that I had named a bunch of cops who'd used their work addresses, cops and first responders, used their work addresses to make donations to Kyle Rittenhouse on there, right? Like, I, mm. I mean, I, I just think that, yeah, I, I don't know if it's so bad in Australia, but, but like, definitely with Give, Send, Go, there's just no red line for them, it seems to me. There's no part of their entire raison d'etre is we're not going to cancel you or whatever. We're, gonna, we're not going to stop you crowdfunding just because... Free speech. You're a national socialist. Yeah, free speech, exactly. And our enemies are on the left, right? Anyone on the right is, is, is basically fine. There's no, there's no, which is, that's wild too, right? Because it's like, there's, there's nothing in your politics and my politics that's incommensurable, right? And we both have the same adversary. It's, it's, yeah, you could see, I mean, not to, sorry, not to, what's the internet law about Nazis? Not to break that law, but yeah, like, you read all of these stories, you read all of these histories of Weimar, right? The, like the end of Weimar and how it was like, there's this analysis that keeps coming up, which is like the, the crucial failure was conservatives who chose to work with the Nazis instead of, instead of they were the ones whose abandonment really of the Republic was the most crucial. And that, that sounds pretty academic when you're reading about stuff that happened almost a century ago, but like you can see it happening in instances like that, right? Like we're going to let national socialists crowdfund on our website because this society is polarized in such a way that like, that just doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter to me that national socialists are using my site to crowdfund because they're not a problem to me. Like the, the, the problem is the left who stop people crowdfunding on GoFundMe or whatever, like whatever version of the left they have in their head. And so, yeah, like national socialists in Australia can, can benefit from that. I, I don't, I don't know if things have quite disintegrated to that extent in Australia. I, and I think Australia is generally a somewhat less polarised society in that sense. Where it's just like, what's what's the phrase I'm looking for? It's just no holds barred thing in the US in terms of those connections. But it seems like maybe it's a little more contained in Australia. I don't know. Maybe. But, but I think... Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I think in reference to January 26, if you consider that there were and has been for several years many tens of thousands of people marching in solidarity with Indigenous peoples and their claims to land rights and calling for some not only popular reckoning with Australia's history as a colonial settler state but supporting 
to one degree or another certain institutional measures that begin that can begin to address that on a I mean this is largely operating on a state level if not a federal but there is it seems to me that in recent years that that's become more popular has obtained greater support even in the face of the fairly limited measures that have been taken on the part of governments and the state to if not resolve then at least begin to address seriously these issues and questions over land rights and other issues that have been created for Indigenous peoples by settlement. No, you, you're quite right, and, and it makes me think that I should qualify everything I've said on this topic up to this point, where it's like the, the, the reflection I'm looking for, I, I guess, is at, is at the level of the, 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 the state and, and, and the higher-level discussion of politics, and I, I, I really should not have suggested that there's no reflection on any of this. And, and it... And, I mean, the the protests this this year look pretty large in some cities, larger than ever, and so that's and and on that score, I mean, yeah, I, the fact that those there's so much energy in those protests is probably part of what was motivating NSN to to show up, right, to maybe confront some people and to like maybe maybe there's violence in the offing, maybe that's part of the attraction as well, so. I, I should qualify all of that, and and you're quite right. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, that's fine. But yeah, I mean, how I look at it is, in those terms, I think the reasons, both because of the nature of the Mabo decision and subsequent legislative measures, this is, I guess, it's an intractable problem. It seems for the state to resolve in any just manner, and that while those mechanisms aren't really in place outside of native title and so on and so forth. There have been steps towards that, but yeah. there seems to be an incapacity to really seriously address them in ways that don't, I suppose, also harm the interests of those sectors of the economy that dominate the society. Well, that, that's the thing, right? Like it's still, if you replayed the last couple of hundred years of, of Australian history to someone arriving from Mars, they might say that there's a project of colonial extraction that's ongoing, right? I mean, yeah. in the sense that the the, 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 the the largest, some of the most powerful sort of interests in the country are still miners who are, as you say, quite rightly. I mean, in some cases, you can, you, you, you can, you can definitely find instances where mining companies have chosen to or been forced to negotiate with traditional owners in in some in, in some form of compensation, right? In in producing some form of compensation for 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 what they're getting out of their mining leases. I don't know if I'd say that that's gone far enough, or if it happens all the time. But at the end of the day, it's still an extractive project on on land that not so long ago belonged to someone else, <laughs> and so and that's where a lot of the wealth. And, and and income for the country comes from right still that's a lot of the wealth that's generated in the Australian economy so it's yeah it's it's still going on and maybe that's why the anxiety about coming to terms with was part of why the anxiety about coming to terms with that history is so pronounced and 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 like I said shrill over the top and yeah so I I don't know but that's yeah, that's that's what I thought about NSN. I mean, I, I I read what you wrote too, Andy, and you said that you you said that maybe 
they're going to Sydney and doing this stuff because they've exhausted their prospects of recruiting more people in, in Victoria. Is that, am I getting you right there? That's one thought that occurred to me. Yeah. And also read in terms of the history of the group that the, the precursor group or the prior organization that the Christchurch killer was in contact with the late society had established itself in Sydney several years ago. That right. project failed partly for a number of reasons, one of which was uh, factionalism within the group. And I think, I mean, also in terms of its symbolic value, you know, Uncle Arthur arrived in that part of the world, not down here. Maybe there was an attempt to you know, seize upon that. But also, I mean, Sydney remains the largest city. It makes sense to plant the flag there, try and revive the neo-Nazi network of which they're a part in Sydney. And I know also, I mean, leaving aside the, the actions that the New South Wales police took, which you also addressed in the article, there's a maybe a greater familiarity with the group and its antics and an expectation that there may be some opposition, if not from police, then from others. And it's I, I could be wrong, but I read it as a form of experimentation. Let's put on a show, see what happens. And also, as you also note in the article, this was a national mobilisation. It comprised people from down here and up there and around the place. I, I did enjoy the little moment of provincialism from the Premier saying they're importing hate into New South Wales, yeah. <laughs> as, yeah. as, as if that was okay. necessary. <laughs> yeah, well, read a book, mate. Well, Jason, just to recap, a crime to measure skulls. Sorry, hat makers, you're cancelled. <laughs> Can't even provide funding to a group that has multiple members currently sitting in prison on terrorism charges. Can't even dig a little hole in the ground just for fun. Can't even take a bloody boat ride on Australia Day, apparently. Cancelled, cancelled, cancelled. All of you are cancelled. Jason, we'll have to leave it there. Right. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thanks as always for having me. If people want to f- find you online, x.com slash Jason A underscore A underscore W and elsewhere, and, I, I imagine. Yes, I'm on I'm on Mastodon. I think there's a link in my Twitter bio to that and also at, at the Manchester Guardian. Well, Andy, that's the show. We'll be back next week. Yep, we'll see you then. Bye-bye. Bye.
Creating space for women and gender-diverse people to thrive, the Queen Victoria Women's Centre is now taking applications for their inaugural Feminist Historian-in-Residence. Over 12 months, revisit their historical records to uncover fresh stories and perspectives. The centre encourages proposals that challenge their history from an intersectional viewpoint and grapple with the complexities of colonisation. To apply, head to qvwc.org.au, closing Friday, February 16th. Queen Victoria Women's Centre is a 3CR supporter. Victoria's wildlife need your help when bushfires strike. They can be injured, dehydrated or disoriented after bushfires. Call Wildlife Victoria 84007300 if you see wildlife in distress or for more information. To donate or volunteer, go to wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter.